Every life is a story. Some are bestsellers. I'm Chuck. I'm Karen. And this is Spy Stories. Okay, well, tell me who you are going to tell me about today, Karen. Today we're going to learn about Claire Phillips. She was a spy, and this is her story. She was born Clara Mabel De La Taste in 1907, Harvard City, Michigan. She was the middle of three girls. Early on, the family moved to Racine, Wisconsin, where her father was a barber. Just after Claire turned two, her father was seriously injured in a really freak train accident. A loose rail had ripped through the floors of several train cars. Two people were actually killed in it, and three were seriously injured. One being Claire's dad, who eventually died of those injuries when she was five years old. In the years that were following, Claire's mother moved the girls to Portland, where they acquired a new stepfather and a relatively stable life. Claire was freshman president of the Girls' League at her high school, and that showed kind of a level of commitment, popularity, and quite a bit of school involvement. The life she led just wasn't exciting enough for her, though, and at 16, she spontaneously decided to join a traveling circus that was moving through Portland. Her job was selling tickets to a snake-charming show, and once, when the performer was sick, she even replaced him. Her parents eventually tracked her down, and they brought her home, but her appetite for drama, that had just been started, and she wasn't going to turn back, so... Claire ended up trying out and received a position with the Baker Stock Theater Company. This led to other acting opportunities, and she finally found herself with a musical trope in the Philippines. While she was there, she met and she very hastily married a Filipino merchant mariner and adopted a baby girl named Diane, but the marriage fell apart due to her husband's controlling and domineering behavior. It was at this point in her life that Clara started going by Claire. She also began a regular gig singing at a local Manila casino. It was there that she caught the gaze and the heart of gentle, soft-spoken John Phil Phillips, an American sergeant. It was the fall of 1941, and their relationship was passionate and intense, so much so that they decided to marry amidst the chaos of Pearl Harbor. As bombs rocked Manila, Claire escaped with Phil and Diane to the Bataan Peninsula across the bay. Manila is an interesting thing because the Americans, everything was tense with America and Japan, and they kind of thought maybe Japan would attack. They weren't really sure, but we knew that if they attacked Pearl Harbor that the Philippines would be next, and they had a plan in place should that happen. And for whatever reason, MacArthur chose not to go with that plan. It was called Rainbow Five. And he basically didn't defend Manila at all. Right. And he, his biographer said he was just overwhelmed. He was almost in a catatonic state. So when the Japanese came after Manila the next day, they basically destroyed all the aircraft on the ground. Right. Well, Manila had no, Manila was left defenseless. It was a pretty, pretty difficult situation. And despite the danger and the lack of resources, on Christmas Eve, in a makeshift chapel under the blessing of a village priest, Claire and Phil managed to become husband and wife. Soldiers in Bataan were really struggling to hold their ground, though. 
Well, and this, again, this comes from MacArthur not defending it and having all his aircraft destroyed. And when they decided to retreat, they left half their food and supplies there. So it's not really clear what what MacArthur was thinking there. What's really amazing, though, is this battle lasted for 99 days. And even though the Americans and Filipinos had to surrender, it was considered a huge propaganda victory because the Japanese army was just considered invincible. They just felt like they could not be defeated. So for them to hold off for 99 days was was pretty impressive. It really was. It was. I mean, it just showed their level of fortitude. Well, Phil ended up separating from Claire and Diane and giving them very fervent instructions to hide while he rejoined the fight. While Claire and Diane were being smuggled to different points of safety, Claire met Corporal John Boone, who was constructing a really high-risk plan to form a guerrilla outfit to fight the enemy. Just wasn't going to take it. He was going to do something about it. Boone noticed Claire's innate sense of courage, and he asked her to go back to Manila and establish a source of supplies. Yeah, and Boone was an interesting guy because when the Americans surrendered, he just said, nope, and he headed out into the jungle. And there were a lot of Americans that did that. If you look at the Americans that were working with the American soldiers, there were there were probably like 60 of them um, that did that. And he had to kind of coordinate everything and get them all together. And it's really, really interesting because I think we talk about Chick Parsons later. He gets a lot of notoriety. But Boone was the one who organized this guerrilla army, and mm. they caused just tons and tons and tons of problems for the Japanese and really boosted the morale of the people of Manila. That was this guerrilla army was really their only hope. Right. Right. And, and they kind of organized a whole underground thing, too, on top of the just the raw guerrilla warfare, didn't they? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they it was kind of this whole underground resistance movement. Right. And it was really, it, right. it's amazing because if you try to look Boone up, it's he's an interesting story. Mm-hmm. But unless you get into books about other people, you're not really going to find out that much about Boone himself. Right. And he was, he was a major, major player in this. Right. Well, it, it, what's really crazy is that they managed to pull this together so quickly. I mean... The whole thing was 99 days. You think about how quickly they were able to organize a resistance. It's it's pretty amazing. Right. Well, the mission took on a much more serious intensity for Claire after she watched the thousands of prisoners that were suffering during the 1942 Bataan Death March. Yeah, which everybody, everybody knows about. Um, although, you know, only 3,000 people died on that march, so... There's kind of a perspective that people don't really have. They think it's, you know, like there were hundreds of thousands killed. And they were mostly Filipinos killed. Only really about 500 Americans died. Mm -hmm. It was the way they were treated. Well, it was the brutality of the march. And it was 65 miles Mm -hmm. to their camp. And the soldiers would slow down. They would just bayonet them on the road and leave them there. So it it was a pretty horrific march. But really not comparatively, not that many people died on it. 3,000 people. Well, for Claire, seeing it, it was ex- it was especially difficult, especially because she had just heard that her husband had been captured and taken back to Manila. 
So as she's seeing this, she's thinking her husband is a part of it. So it, it took on a whole different thing for her. So Claire slipped back into the occupied city and she took with her some forged papers and a whole new identity, Dorothy Fuentes, and she claimed Italian-Filipino descent. I really couldn't find any definitive information on where Diane was kept during this time. It sounds like she was just kind of smuggled from family to family while Claire did her espionage work. But as Dorothy, Claire volunteered as a nurse in the local church hospital, and that's where she really connected with Boone's entire underground group that was smuggling food and medicine to the prisoners. And they were all in one of the largest prisoner war camps in the Pacific, Cabanaton. Just quickly, the Japanese were pretty notorious for not treating their prisoners of war well. When you think about the Germans, if you weren't a Russian and you were a POW, the death rate wasn't that high. It was like what we looked up like 4%. But mm-hmm. if you were in a Japanese camp, it was like 30, 35%. Right. So in this particular camp, they were not at all prepared for the number of soldiers they were going to get. This camp was built to hold 25,000 max, and they ended up with 72,000. Wow. So it would be, it would be pretty, pretty horrific in that camp. Right, right. Well, in efforts to build connections, Claire began to work as a hostess in a nightclub that catered to Japanese clients. One night, she was beaten for failing to show proper respect to a nightclub patron. And after tending to her wounds, Claire just, she just got mad. Her nerve hardened even more. And she just really started to thirst for a a more powerful way to make a difference. So she sold her jewelry And she leased a dance studio, and she worked with another dancer from the club that she had been working at, and they transformed it into an upscale nightclub. In 1942, she opened the doors to the Sabuki Club. The venture was so successful that Claire ended up taking most of the employees and the patrons of her former job. The club was known for its luxury, and those who visited it had no problem paying its super high prices. And the whole time, they had no idea that their money was actually going to help the POWs in Corporal Boone's resistance efforts. So, yeah, because this club was the the center of that activity, right? Right, right. And I mean, this was the, the place to be. And she purposely made the prices as high as possible. But because it was considered, you know, the in place to go, people would just pay those prices no matter how high they were. And the whole time they were funding the resistance. And in reading about this, you know what this club kind of reminded me of? What? The movie Casablanca. Yeah. Well, that's actually, if you look up the story, there are a lot of uh, comparisons to that. So that's a pretty legitimate way to look at it. Mm -hmm. Under the guise of establishing the club, Claire was also recruiting her own little spy network, and it was known as the Miss You Spy Ring. Many of the dancers, even Claire herself sometimes, would use their powers of seduction to obtain information for the Philippine resistance and other forms of sabotage. 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 Some of the information she collected was even transmitted to American forces in the Pacific and then was used to predict and counter Japanese military activities. All the while, everything that she did, she told herself she was doing it for Phil. And any of the items that she could get into the prison camp could 
could be assisting the man that she loved. The hodgepodge of people making up the resistance, they all went by code names. And Claire's was was kind of funny. It was she was called High Pockets. And this was due to her habit of smuggling documents and contraband in her bra. Oh, and that's that's that still goes on today, as a matter of fact. <laughs> maybe, yeah, cell maybe she started the trend. And if cell phones are contraband, people keep cell phones. It always amazes me when women reach into their bra with the stuff they pull, pull out. Stuff out. Well, yeah. apparently she would like wrap um, papers and things like that around the straps and like created little pockets inside the straps to hide documents, fold it very, very small and... I mean, it was just really, really um, interesting what she was able to do. Now, this whole underground network, they used a code, and the code was based on food. And one example of this was the word cookies, that meant contraband, baked meant smuggled, and recipe would be the word for whatever the need was from the camp. Hmm. If the intelligence that people got or the contraband was especially helpful, there would be a return code that would read something like, beans, very good, send more. Now, see, cookies, send more cookies would make more sense than beans to me, but. <laughs> I, I think so, too. Yeah. Well, items like medicine, they were smuggled in through fruit, often bananas. That's bananas. After Claire had smuggled in a particularly helpful bit of contraband. I just got that. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> one time when Claire had smuggled in a, a really helpful bit of contraband, she got a note in return from one of the prisoners that read, you deserve more gold medals than all of us in here together. So, I mean, sure, that was very, very meaningful to her since in her mind she was doing it all for her husband. But... Claire hit the ground running. Her operation was working really smoothly, but then the world just fell away from beneath her feet with one notice, and that was one that told her that her husband had died in the prison camp. When she heard this news, she was basically emotionally paralyzed for some time, and she just she could not sustain her usual work. In her pain, she reached out to a priest who gently reminded her that her husband was one of many men most who were alive and in desperate need for assistance. So, she regained her composure, dried her tears, and focused on those she could still help. Her work began again, but this time it was much, much harder to bear all the conversations from the club patrons that were boasting about their kills. Claire, after filling the men with alcohol and flirting with them to gain their trust and secrets, she would often have to excuse herself, and then she would just vomit out of sheer disgust at the knowledge that each death that she was forced to toast represented the man that she loved. Yeah, uh, that would have to be tough. Yeah, it would. But still, she would wash up, touch up her lipstick, go back out, and continue to work that art of seduction. So she, I mean, she was a pretty, pretty tough woman to be able to do that, for sure. As the club's reputation soared, so did the Filipinos' resentment for what they thought was her disloyalty. Um, you know, they saw her as approving of the Japanese. They didn't, th those that were not involved in the underground. Yeah, her patrons were all right. the Japanese. So the, the Filipinos that did not know what she was doing, they just saw her as, as catering directly to them, to the, to the enemy. And so she, she was... 
reviled by her neighbors. They saw it as profiteering. Exactly. Exactly. So most of her neighbors did not know about her acts of sabotage. 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 And the contempt that they showed Claire, it really began to wear on her. And that wasn't the only difficulty for her. Many of the young Japanese soldiers that came to her club, they were actually just nice kids doing what they were being told to do. Many of them ended up confessing their shame to her and told her how much they missed their families and how they just wanted to go home. And Claire, she would wipe away the tears from their faces with the same fingers that she used to write their names on the slips of papers that she gave to U.S. operatives. You know, after a while, that just wore on her too. You know, their faces started adding to, as she heard of their deaths and stuff, their faces were added to her nightmares too, you know. It's just tough. After 18 months of her grueling work, Claire was captured by Japanese military police. A few days earlier, one of the members of her spy ring had been captured and tortured and eventually released Claire's name. Claire was taken to Bilibid Prison in Manila and upon arriving there was put into solitary confinement for six months. Now, while she was there, she was beaten, tortured, and underwent just really brutal interrogations. She endured 183 days of horror, and some of the things that she went through, she was tied to a bench with a garden hose attached to her mouth. It was just shoved down her throat, and after she had passed out from gasping for air, she would have lit cigarettes put out on her legs to revive her, and then it would just all start over again. She even endured a mock beheading. Now the... Yes, it was, and the... Garden hose was not like what we would think of as waterboarding today because people with waterboarding think they're going to drown. Mm -hmm. The garden hose, what it did, would completely bloat your stomach. It was extremely, extremely painful. And then, right. of course, like you would. It was a double thing. Yeah. It was a double thing. And then you would vomit this water back up as you were kind of on your back or kind of upside down, which would make you choke again. So it was just a. Mm -hmm. It's a horrible, really almost worse than waterboarding. Right. Well, despite all of this, Claire never gave up any information about her spy work or any other intelligence other than what they already knew. And because of this, she ended up being sentenced to death for the crime of espionage. Somehow, she was granted a reprieve when she went before the tribunal. It could have been that a patron of her club, who she had shown some kindness to, spoke up for her. We really don't know what, what it was, but her sentence ended up being reduced to 12 years of hard labor. Still still not a very pleasant sentence in that, in that situation. No, getting easy labor would have been better. <laughs> well, despite the reduced sentence, Claire was weakened, starved, and really at the point of death when American soldiers stormed the prison in 1945. That is actually a very good story, if you it, if you get a chance is. to read it. It is. It's pretty amazing. And so when they when they came in and they they got everybody out of there, Claire was finally free. And with her newfound freedom, she was finally reunited with her daughter Diane, and they moved back to Portland. After coming home, she wrote a memoir of her experiences, and she titled it Manila Espionage, and it was published in 1947. In 1948, Claire Phillips was presented with the Medal of Freedom by General Mark Clark. Claire's book, 
which um, a lot of critics have said was was kind of dramatized. That was the basis for the 1951 Hollywood film, I Was an American Spy. Obviously, back then, they really had ambiguous movie titles, didn't they? Very creative. (laughs) Right. Well, Claire lived the rest of her life as an advocate for former POWs, and all the while, she herself suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder. I mean, she she just couldn't ever completely heal from what she went through, understandably. She went through some pretty horrific things. And sadly, she died unexpectedly of meningitis in May of 1960. She was 52 years old. An interesting footnote to her story, though, is the story of adoptee Wendy Johnson. Wendy is from Albany, Oregon. As Wendy struggled to learn about her birth family, she discovered that her biological mother was actually Diane Phillips, Claire's daughter. The especially interesting part of the story is that previous depictions of Claire's life portrayed Diane as adopted. In I Was an American Spy, the daughter was blonde and um, just depicted as looking completely different than Claire. And the assumption was that Diane had been adopted. But Wendy actually claims that the records show that Diane was actually born to Claire in that first marriage and that the adoption story was actually concocted to combat the earlier racial prejudice there was over mixed marriages. So it's kind of an interesting little addition to the story. Wendy is actually said to be writing a book about her discoveries. She plans to donate sales proceeds to programs assisting adoptees in finding their genealogical and medical history. Claire Phillips was many things. She was an adventurer, a performer, a lover, a fighter, a wife, a business owner, a mother, a prisoner, a grandmother, a spy. You can find spy stories on all the main podcasting platforms. If you like the show, please take the time to leave us a review on iTunes. You can find our discussion group on Facebook at Spy Stories Group. And you can follow us on Twitter at Spy Stories Pod. The life of Claire Phillips reminds us, just as Harriet the Spy says, life is a struggle. A good spy gets in there and fights. So until next time, keep fighting. (laughs) 